I love, I love seeing the kids. I don't know if whoever was here earlier, the kids were out running around and playing, and, and we were singing songs, and it's really fun. We should be praying for more of that, because I think that's what makes a church come online. Um, I would love it if you would join me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this new year. We thank you for this time of renewal. Um, we ask that you would help us to renew our hearts as we go to your word. We ask that you would help to open our hearts to hear your word and your message and to find your son, Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would give us the strength we need to apply your word to our lives. And Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help to make my words clear and concise so that those listening would be able to take it and apply it and to go live and become disciples and be more and more like you. And most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he made for us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. All right. So we're back. It's a new year. I hope everyone had a good Christmas. I'm excited. Um, and I'm excited to jump back into our Pyramids series. We took a little bit of a break through Christmas. Um, we're going to be looking through the book of Exodus. And remember, we're calling it Pyramids because we're, we're looking at the Bible like a pyramid where the base layer is that reading the word and finding out what it says. And then we have a layer up from that where we apply it to our lives. And then a layer up from that where we're looking for the New Testament in the Old Testament, looking for Jesus. And then that top layer where we're simply trying to find out who God is and know more about him and his nature. Um, so if you have your Bible today, we're going to be in Exodus chapters 5 and 6. Um, if you have a smartphone, if you're a smartphone person, we also have uh, all of my sermon notes and scripture are uh, in the YouVersion Bible app. I know most people would rather have a regular Bible. Um, but the reason I keep bringing up the app uh, is because there's a lot of stuff that I don't get time to preach on that I usually stick in the app. Um, and so if you ever feel like you're not getting enough sermon from me, there's plenty more to go uh to go around in the app also. Um, but even if even if you don't look that up, if you have a smartphone, I highly recommend getting the Bible on your phone because what a better thing to do than have God's word in your pocket wherever you go, right? Isn't that awesome we get to do that? Um, but we're going to be in Exodus 5 and 6, and because it's been a couple of weeks and we've had some people be gone back and forth, I want to kind of stop and back up and, and make sure we're all on the same page with where we are in the story. Um, so we opened up Exodus a full 430 years after Genesis ends, right? So the, and then there's this new Pharaoh who comes, and he's concerned that he might lose all of his workers to his enemies. So he thinks to himself, perhaps infanticide is the answer, right? That's not smart, but that's what Pharaoh thinks he's going to do it. But God's not going to have any of that. And so working through plain, normal, ordinary people, God ends up saving the lives of thousands of Hebrew children. And then in Exodus, our story kind of zooms in, and we start looking at one of those Hebrew children that were saved specifically, and that's Moses, right? So we have this picture, and it zooms in on Moses, and we read in chapters 3 and 4 that God chooses Moses specifically to be the one who's going to deliver his people from slavery, right? God sees the suffering that the people are going through, and he has compassion on them, and he chooses Moses to be the one to rescue them. And so what we're going to be looking at today in Exodus 5 and 6 is 
that conversation that Moses has with Pharaoh when he first tells Pharaoh, hey, God's chosen me, we're going to deliver our people. But before we do that, I wanted to pick up on a couple of little things that I didn't get a chance to talk on uh, a couple of weeks ago from 3 and 4, because the problem when, when we read through 40 chapters in 14 weeks is there's just never enough room to say everything I want to say. Um, so I want to look really quick and talk about God's revelation of his name to Moses in Exodus 3. Right? So this is in Exodus 3.13 when, when uh, God tells Moses he needs to deliver the people. And Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Okay, stop and think about how silly of a question that is to ask God for a minute. Right, Because if you've been reading through the Bible, if you started in Genesis and you're just reading through, never once has anybody in all of Genesis and all of the first part of Exodus ever asked God what his name is. Like Nobody's ever stopped to do that. But you've got to remember, since Exodus happens 430 years after Genesis ends, then you've got to remember that the Hebrews have just spent the last 430 years surrounded by Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion, right? So the Egyptians believed in over 2,000 different gods, air quotes, gods, right? They had a god for every occasion you could think of. They had, uh, if your harvest wasn't going well, they had a god for the harvest. They had a god of fertility. They had a god of war. They had a god of the river, all of these things. And so this might come as a little bit of a shock to you because we hold Moses in such a high view. But what Moses is really doing when he's asking God, what should I tell them your name is? Is Moses is, in a way, he's asking God, which one are you? Right? Because he knows that when he goes back and tells the Israelites, God sent us to be delivered, they're going to be thinking, oh, he's probably one of these 2,000 Egyptian gods, isn't it? Which one is it? Is it the, the Nile god or is it the fertility god? Right? And so you had to understand that God was trying to train the Israelites out of that false god thinking. And so that's why God's name, the revelation of God's name is so important when he says, I am. He says, my name is I am. Right? So in the Hebrew, the word uh, Yahweh, we hear people say God's name is Yahweh. That literally means he is. Okay? And so, because if you're talking about God, you would say he is. If God is talking to you, he would say, I am. That's why Yahweh means he is, not I am. And so what God is really saying here is he is above all things. Right? He is not just a God of the Nile or of the crops or whatever. He is the God of all creation. Because it's really hard for us to get in that mindset of what they were thinking, but in that polytheistic culture, they treated the gods more like genies, right? More like magic eight balls. So if you were having a bad harvest, you would go and you would do a sacrifice to the harvest god and he would make your harvest better. Or if you were getting ready to go into battle, you would, you would go over and get your little statue of the god of war and you would do a sacrifice to him as, a, as a, almost like a, a wishing well. 
But God, the real God, the true God, does not work that way. He's not a vending machine. Right? And that's something we sometimes treat God like a vending machine. Right? He's, that's not who God really is. Um, but, and, and one other little side note about um, that name, Yahweh, I am. Um, you'll notice in like 99% of English Bibles, it doesn't actually ever say Yahweh. Have you ever notice that? It doesn't ever say he is or I am. You'll see the words, the Lord, in all capital letters. Um, and that comes from a long line of tradition out of respect for the Jewish tradition for not using the Lord's name. Right? So um, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And so what the, the Israelite people figured out was, if I never actually say God's name, and I can guarantee I'm never saying it in vain. And so they would actually never say Yahweh when they were reading the Hebrew Torah. They would say Adonai, which means the Lord. They would actually change the word out of respect, out of reverence, not to say it. So um, that's just a, a long-standing Bible tradition. That's why your Bible probably doesn't say Lord, God's name. It just says the Lord. But just know that when you see the Lord in all capital letters, that's what's actually in the Hebrew is God's name. Okay, so now, I, I, I really wanted to make sure we got through all that because I think it's uh, important. Now we can actually jump into Exodus 5. Um, so I want to start off in Exodus 5, chapter 1. This is after Moses has uh, gone back to Egypt. And in, in verse 1, it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So what Pharaoh is doing, he's, he's exemplifying that Egyptian religious culture I was just explaining. Right? Pharaoh was thinking to himself, Well, I know all sorts of different gods, and he is not one of them. Right? Who, who is he? Because Moses said, he is going to save us. He is going to, we are going to rescue to him. And, and Pharaoh says, I don't know who this he is, is. And so, and so Pharaoh says, yeah, I'm going to pass because I don't know this one. Right? You can't go. And then in verse 3, they respond back to Pharaoh. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us now. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or the sword. So, so think about what, what they're actually asking there. They didn't demand anything unreasonable, right, at first. They literally said, we want three days. Give us three days to go out and do our sacrifices and we'll be good. And I bet this is one of those moments, like, I would imagine that Pharaoh looked back on his life at the end of his life and all of the mistakes he made, and I bet this is the one where he stopped and said, you know, if I would have just let them go for their little three-day holiday and they would have come back and they would have been happy, none of this would have ever happened, right? From a purely practical standpoint, if you're an evil dictator and all it takes to keep your subjects in line is to give them a three-day weekend every now and then, like... You should probably do that. But he didn't. Uh, but, but, but that's actually good. That's a good thing that he didn't do that for the Israelites. You know why? 
Imagine what would have happened if Pharaoh would have said yes. Right? The Israelites would have taken their three-day journey. They would have gone out in the desert. They would have done their sacrifice. They would have done their worship. They would have come back, and then they would have been right back to worshiping all 2,000 Egyptian idols, just like nothing had ever happened. Right? They would have viewed God as just another God to worship to. He would have been just the God of the Hebrews. And so it's actually important that Pharaoh said no at first, because in the long run, they didn't need a three-day retreat. They needed life-altering transformation. They needed a life change. But nonetheless, the way Pharaoh responds to this simple request is by telling them, he says, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. Right? So instead of showing mercy and compassion and prudence, Pharaoh decides to respond with force. And we read here, we pick up in chapter 6, this is the kind of force that Pharaoh responds with. In in verse 6, he says, The same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And then in verse 10, we get something. This verse 10 is very important. It's very telling about Pharaoh. It says, Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Now, if you've been around the Bible a time or two, you may have noticed that there's a key phrase whenever a prophet is speaking for God. Right, So in, in the NIV it says, this is what the Lord says, and then the prophet says his words. Right? Um, in the old King James, you might be more familiar with, thus saith, you know, you're, thus saith the Lord. Right? Anytime you, you pick up on, like, in the King James it says, thus saith the Lord, you know that that's coming from God. Well, that is what Pharaoh is saying, only he's putting his name in there. Literally, he's saying, thus saith Pharaoh. And then he gives his instructions. And so what Pharaoh is doing, he's saying, thus saith Pharaoh, get back to work. And it's not an accident. It's an outright direct challenge to the authority of God by presenting himself that way and saying, thus saith Pharaoh, because they believed that Pharaoh was a god. He was one of those 2,000 gods. And it's at this point that we kind of finally get to understand why Pharaoh is the way he is and why he's so adamant about not allowing them to go out and do their sacrifices. Right At the surface level, it probably had to do with the workload and wanting to get stuff done. But I think at a, at a, at a certain level, when you're so egotistical that that's who you think you are, I think Pharaoh couldn't handle the fact that his subjects would dare to go and worship somebody other than him. 
right? When you really boil it down to it, that's really what's going on here is Pharaoh's thinking that he is God and he can't handle it, that they're going to go out and worship some other God that he knows not. And so the, the slave drivers make their announcement, thus saith Pharaoh. And then in verse, uh, oh man, I put my scriptures in there wrong. We need to be looking at 11 through 18. Oh, there we go. Um, so this is the pro pro proclamation, thus saith Pharaoh. Verse 11, go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And when Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Okay, let's... Let's put all that into the big picture here for a minute. God's people are oppressed. God has compassion on them and wants to rescue him. And his people trust him. At the very least, they trust him enough to go and ask for a three-day weekend to go do sacrifices, right? They are having faith in God, and yet, what are they given in return? They're given more brutal working conditions. They're giving, given more suffering. And so what we're kind of getting is this picture of the idea. Nowhere in Scripture, in any of this book, are we ever promised that by having faith in God that our life is just going to be easy. That's important. That's something the Israelites needed to know. Just because you have trust in God, that doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering. That doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. Right. This is. A, I didn't come up with this quote. I can't take credit for it. This is a Bible scholar named Douglas Stewart. Stewart. But I think this kind of hits the nail on the head. It says God's people must not assume that carrying out His commands will increase their own comfort. In fact, God promises the exact opposite. He promises us that we will experience suffering. We will experience hardship. He never once promises comfort, at least not here. And so a couple of weeks ago, when we were reading uh, Exodus 3 and 4, we turned to Matthew 9 and 10 and kind of compared God's commissioning of Moses with Jesus' commissioning of his disciples. And I want to do that again one more time. Um, in Matthew 10. Um, if, you, if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to go back today and read Exodus 3 and 4, and then read, uh, mostly Exodus 3, and then read Matthew 10 and compare those, because um, I think it's, it's quite telling. But in Matthew 10, um, Jesus is sending his followers on this quest to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus, right? So in Matthew 10, 7, he says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. 
But what we didn't get to is in verse 17 is when the shoe drops. This is the bricks without straw moment for the disciples. In verse 17, he says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 21 says, Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. So if, if you're reading that and you're thinking to yourself, man, that's a raw deal. I don't know why anybody would want to sign up for a life like that. You're not alone. Okay, that's, that's normal to have that. But, but you've got to understand that that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. But then he puts the icing on the cake in verse 22. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Right? So not only are you going to be flogged and beaten and persecuted and all that, but you will be hated by everyone because of me. But then he has a little bit of hope. He says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Who, who here has ever like, talked to a really good salesman, like a good car salesman or somebody at a store? You've had somebody that, like, they just did a really good job and they, they were a good salesman. Anybody? Nobody? You guys have had bad salesmen? Okay. That's okay. I, I know there's been a couple of times where, like, if we've gone to buy a car, you know those salesmen you feel like you could really trust? One of the things I've noticed is that the best car salesmen are not the ones who, who sugarcoat everything and just really push and try to sell that car, right? I never want to buy a car from that guy because I can just tell there's something smarmy about him. The best salesmen are the ones who will just tell it straight. They'll tell you like it is. They'll be like, yeah, this is a decent car. It's got a lot of miles. You may have to replace the transmission later, but it's a good deal. So here's why you should buy it, right? They give you all of the information instead of promising you the moon. And you, you have all the information and you feel like you can trust him. You're not going to get any unexpected surprises because that salesman was upright and honest with you. Right? So, if I were to compare my job to a car salesman, in a sense, I'm a salesman for the gospel, right? That's kind of what preaching is. I'm here to encourage and, and convince you all that you should continue to dedicate your life to Christ. And if I told you, that you became a Christian and you're going to get everything you ever wanted and everything you ever wished for, and being a Christian is going to be great, and if you just have faith, God is just going to take care of you in every single way. I mean, I might be giving a good sales pitch, but it's not the truth, is it? The Bible never tells us that Jesus is going to give us everything you want. Common sense tells us that believing in Jesus doesn't just give you everything you want. And the last thing I ever want to do is to falsely give anyone the idea that being a Christian is easy. Right? It's not sunshine and rainbows all the time. And so, if, you, if you're looking for a comfortable religion, 
There are plenty of comfortable religions out there. There are plenty of other religions. Some of them even use the name Christianity in their title, and they promise you that if you just tithe and you donate and you show up, God is going to reward you financially. He's going to cure every ailment that you've ever had. He's going to cure your cancer. He's going to just take care of you, and everything in your life from here on out is just going to be comfortable. Those religions are out there. You can follow them. You can go. But you know what? They're lies. You can sniff them out just like you can a, a smarmy car salesman. You know that they're not preaching the truth. And so back in Exodus, the Israelites kind of get their first taste of what it's like to follow the true God. And instantly, they're punished by heavy labor and terrible working conditions. And they don't like it. They would rather have the Egyptian prosperity gospel that says to them, you know, if I just give a sacrifice to the God of the, of the harvest, then everything's going to be great for me. They would rather have the false security that comes along with the comfort of just thinking you're going to be taken care of than to follow the true God. And so we read in Exodus 5, their response. This is Exodus 5.19, the Israelite response to their suffering. Verse 19 says, The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So maybe you've had a moment where you've looked at the things that are happening in your life, and you've thought to yourself, well, what good is it following Jesus if, if my life's still going to be difficult? I know I've had those moments where you look at the struggles you're going through and you're like, what good is it being a follower of God if my loved one is still going to get cancer? How many times have you heard somebody who's not a Christian say something like, well, if God is so good, why would he allow X to happen, right? I've heard it. I've thought it before. And Jesus' answer in Matthew 10 is simply, I'm not of this world. You're not of this world. Let's turn back to Matthew 10 again. This is Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? That sounds really harsh when you think about, oh, man, I should believe in God because he might destroy my soul in hell. Keep reading. Okay, because if you read the next verse, it all kind of comes together. In verse 29, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Never read one Bible verse all by itself, by the way. Always keep reading. 
See, the, the big difference between the life of a believer and a non-believer is that the believer has suffering right alongside with the non-believer, right? It comes with the territory of being a Christian. If you feel like you're making bricks without straw, that means you might be on the right track. But the difference is that we have a God who cares about us so much that he knows every thought we've ever thought, every time we've ever laid down, stood up. He knows every single hair on our heads, and he's with us walking all the way through that suffering. Every step of the way, he's with us. And so Jesus makes this proclamation to his disciples. He says, yeah, it's going to be rough, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and your father cares about you. And one of those disciples who heard that speech was Peter. He actually went on later to be crucified on a cross uh, for believing in Jesus, right? They crucified him upside down. So if anybody knows um, suffering when it comes to following Christ, that would be Peter, right? He's actually got a leg to stand on. And in his first letter that he wrote to the churches, in 1 Peter, I want to read this to you because I think it's, I think Peter understood the assignment. This is Peter writing to encourage the churches uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 6. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Right? He's talking about the love of Christ. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Right? So he's acknowledging their pain and their suffering. He says, These things have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving, and this is, the, this is the mic drop moment, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying that all of this suffering, all of this pain that you're going through, churches, all of this persecution, it's worth it. Because you are... By that suffering, you are receiving the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And then he kind of bookends. If you turn to the very last chapter of Peter, it's probably on the last page for your Bible. Um, in, in 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. See, what God's saying, God's not saying I'm going to make your life easier. He's not saying I'm going to take the cancer away. I'm not saying I'm going to make you get your job back. He's saying I know your life is difficult. Take all your anxiety and lay it at my feet. He's saying I'll do you one better than fixing all your problems. I will bear your burdens. Lay it down, your spiritual burden, and let me suffer it alongside you. And then in verse 8, 
He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So when we go back to Exodus, Exodus was that lion. He was the one saying to the Israelites, just bow down to me, just worship to me, just get back to work, and I'll make your lives comfortable again. Just give me all your praise, and then I have the power to lighten the load of your life. And if you read through the Bible over and over and over again, the Israelites chose comfortable lives over truth. They say to Moses, who cares about being freed from our bondage? At least we have food to eat. At least our life is comfortable. But know that if you, if you choose an uncomfortable life, if you choose to face your hardships with God on your side, he will reward you greatly. I'm telling you... Whatever pain you're experiencing, and I know that everyone here is experiencing some sort of pain in one way or another, all of that pain, all of that suffering is worth it. And the Israelites didn't understand that. Because God had to tell them again. Let's go back to Exodus. This is Exodus 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, Therefore say to the Israelites... I am the Lord and will bring you from out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. We have a choice. We can choose comfort and security and this false idea that everything's just going to be okay, or we can choose Christ. We can't have both. But know that when you choose an uncomfortable life, you have Christ on your side. You have a God who will take you and make you his people. And that's worth it. We pray with me? Father, I especially want to ask for you to be with anybody who's dealing with hardship right now, specifically. I don't know what pain everyone here is suffering through. I don't know what difficult circumstances they're going through, but you know it, God, and you have compassion on them. And I want to This might seem like a strange request, God, but I want to ask you to to help them to continue suffering. But I want you to be with them while they're suffering. 
I don't want you to take their pain away. I don't want you to just make everything better. I want you to help strengthen them and encourage them and be with them through their pain and hardship, Lord. I just, that's what we want. We want to have an uncomfortable life for you. And I just ask that you would help to give us the strength to live an uncomfortable life and endure our hardship and endure our suffering for your name, Lord. And we thank you and praise you that you promise us eternal life because of it. You promise us salvation and we know that you keep your promises. We pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. All right. At this time...